Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we've just been to see Little Women. Yes. The new one, there have been so many. Yes. And you've watched a bunch of them recently. I have. I've, I've watched the 1933 version, the 1949 version, and then the Gillian Armstrong version, which I think is 94. It is. Uh, so I've watched all of those three over the Christmas holidays. So, so that's George Cukor in 19, uh, 1933. Yes, it's wonderful. Uh, Mervyn Leroy, 1949, and yeah. Julie Armstrong directed 1994. That's right. So um, I want to know what you think, because, you know, I, I have I have seen so many versions. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've actually got a lot to say, but but you haven't. So I, just, I couldn't be is... bothered to watch any of them. I thought, fine, I'll just, I was looking forward to this, really looking forward to it. I didn't know the story. I'd heard the, the, the phrase Little Women... So much, but I, I didn't know the story. I'd never read the book, uh, never seen any of the other versions. And the title was was interesting to me. The title is interesting, you know, like Little Women. Like, is it sort of saying, oh, they're just little women? Like, these are just their little problems. Like, uh-huh. just in a sarcastic way, clearly, because it's about them. Yeah, know? well, the book makes that clear. But it's... also because it's like they're, they're young women yeah. growing into adulthood. Yes, they're um, children who have the responsibilities of women or who are behaving like, like women. Yeah, and so it's set... The father says it with pride. <laughs> yeah. So it's set um, during the Civil War in yes. America. In is it upstate New York? Uh, I think wasn't it Mass- Ma- yeah uh, Massachusetts somewhere. I thought. Oh, is it? I didn't actually quite get exactly where it was set. Uh, New England, certainly. Um, in a lovely sort of fairly idyllic kind of small town sort of area, big houses surrounded by lots of pastoral land. It's that kind of thing going mm. on, and it's about these four young women and their mother. And the, the, I think the, the film really successfully kind of separates separates the attention between the women. Maybe Beth doesn't get quite enough attention, but the others, I think, it's, it, it kind of shares the attention around quite successfully. It's an ensemble piece, really. Certainly. Um, um, I loved it. I thought it was great. And, oh. it, and by the time it gets to the end, when things are starting to wrap up very nicely, um, it starts to feel very convenient, how it does that, and how everyone kind of ends up in a very happy place. But then the film you know, is also... Undercutting that slightly with the um, with the book publisher character played by Tracy Letts mm-hmm. saying this is how people want their stories to end this is what sells mm. and I think it, I think actually Greg Gerwig the director maintains the tone of that brilliantly because things remain very moving mm. while also pointing out to you exactly what is happening in a kind of metatextual sense which I think was quite successful it could have undercut it completely yes. Um, and ruined it. I was very moved. Um, and I think the film is an extraordinary achievement of tone, actually. Mm. You know, because everything works and it's very funny. And I think, and I was I was very moved from the moment that Beth went to hug Laurie's grandfather to thank him for the piano. Yeah. From that moment on, I think, you know, my my eyes were... were were in a tide, swelling, falling, and yeah. <laughs> rising, right? So I never actually cried, but, you know, you're in that area from from that moment until pretty much the end of the film. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, so, and, and I think that's an extraordinary achievement because, you know, so much, mo- so little moves me, honestly. Uh, and actually, I think, to me, this was the most moving of all the versions that I've seen. You know, I was playing a game in my head thinking... You know, of the what would be your ideal cast? <laughs> uh, you know, because I do think that, like for example, Catherine Hepburn is so extraordinary in the in the nineteen thirty three film, and George Cukor's direction is so wonderful, and I, I really feel that that film uh, brings up 
the um, the feel of the Civil War. The Civil War is implanted in that narrative, in that version, right from the beginning, mm. right? You know, so all of the want, the men going away, the women on their own, like it's all situated within a state of war, you know, which is also a kind of a state of war for principles. Um, and actually, I think that this is something that I initially found missing in the film, you know, but then you have that wonderful little scene with Marmee where she puts that extra scarf into the bag, you know, mm. of a man going to visit his dead sons. I think the extraordinary thing about this film that is really, I would say, very considerably different than all of the others is that in all of the others, the narrative is linear. And this mixes in the past and the present. And actually, the whole film begins when uh, uh, Joe is already in New York, which actually is something that only happens like three quarters or four fifths into the narratives and all of the other versions, right? Uh, so this kind of mixing together of past and present with all of the sisters and the elegance with which the film does it because it almost doesn't cue you in, right? It mm. trusts you to be able to follow it kind of, you know, properly. I think that's really quite a departure and quite amazing. It does it a little bit with, with um, lighting cues or, or colour grading, I noticed. Remember when we watched the report recently yes. about the Iraq yes. torture report? Um, you know, it was very obvious when you were going to the past because um, things were kind of sepia-toned or yes. orange-toned and then they weren't in the future. It was more cold colours. Similar thing going on with a lot of this, particularly when you go back into their old house when they were younger. Yes. You know, the colour changes. But for the most part, no. And, and there were one or two points where I was... Slightly confused at exactly where we were. Not mm. so, not not so much whether we were in the past or the present, but when we were in the past, exactly where in the past. Because particularly the Timothy Chalamet character, um, the one who uh, uh, what's the character's name? Um, Laurie. Laurie, who is the sort of young friend who just he's involved with the whole family really. He's a kind of family friend. He kind of pitches up in everyone's lives at certain points, and and that was a little disorienting at one or two points. But for the most part, I agree. It's I think it's. It's incredibly smooth. I mean, we were thinking recently when we were talking about Scorsese and The Irishman about how smoothly he narrates his films mm. and how, how, how things move so so smoothly. And you don't really question where you are at any point. And I think that's a, a real achievement here. Yes. That, that actually energy carries things through, particularly early on when you have this these wonderful scenes set in the house with all the girls talking over each other and you can hear everybody, but... but there's very little space between each of the lines. So people are just talking and talking and talking and everyone's got something to say and everyone's got a comment um, and there's so much activity. Mm. Uh, and then later on, it's, it's, you get these more sort of... The cross-cutting between Beth's present-day illness and the illness she had in the past mm. to the point where like, you have match cuts between shots, you know, the exact same shot from the present and from the past. Yeah, in the, in the usual narrative, it's the same illness. Mm. It's just, you know, that she's expected to die and then she doesn't die, right. you know, but then kind of... In this uh, one, it's an illness that she gets over and then returns. Well, I mean, the narrative is kind of almost the same, but the way that it's shown here, it, it might give the impression that it's a different illness that she dies from, whereas, in fact, it's the same one. Yeah. Uh, can we talk about the men first, uh, be, you know, before we talk about the women? Because the men have been... A central problem in almost all of the other versions, right? Okay. They're really thankless roles. If you if you see the other versions, they're Dallas Dishwater the man, right? Because the narratives focus on the women. Yeah. So, and I want to say that because I want to signal, you know, what a great job Greta Gerwig has done, you know, because first of all, like 
they're all eye candy in a way, all, <laughs> all of them, which is not the case with the other versions. And I, and I think that's very interesting. Certainly not the case with the versions directed by men, which is really interesting. Um, but here they all are, you know, uh, and, um, and they're all thankless roles. Yeah, kind of, you know, the professor is like normally a completely thankless role. The husband, the tutor of uh, Meg, Laurie. Meg's yeah, Meg's husband completely thankless role uh and then of course laurie which you know i think timothy chamolet makes it marvelous right in a way that it isn't in any other version you know i mean i did think in the 1994 version christian bale plays him and i thought that is christian bale's one charismatic performance <laughs> right because you know he he's very charming in it right it's kind of you can see the fun and you know why he's attracted to the family and so on but uh, Chamolet is like cultish. He's playful. He's, yeah. He, I mean, he's, he's a real sort of fop, you know, just playing around, living his best life, and uh, to a point where where I think I had questions about, you know, do they like this guy? Do they think he's a prick? Do they like him in spite of themselves? Because he is kind of someone who really seems to have no um, responsibilities or anything like that, and he's born into a rich family and he's going to be all right and he's able to just kind of interact with this with this family in a really playful way he doesn't and it's only later on that i really started to feel that the love he has for certain characters and the love they have for him was was really real oh yes um i mean maybe i just expected that because you know i read the books as a child and i know the story and i've seen so many versions but uh, i mean what laurie loves is what he doesn't have which is that family you know, and the interactions between the family and mm. security. I mean, he loves every member of the family, including like the mother and everything, right? Yeah. You know, and the aunt and so on. So, you know, you can see he, what he's taken with is that, you know, the, that love of, you know, that's expressed by family first, right? And so then the thing that develops with Joe and Beth, you know, is something different. And I suppose it's part of, of growing up. But I think he does wonderful things, Chamolet, as an actor. I, initially, I thought, Oh, you know, this is not going to turn out well. But uh, then he does surprising things, like even in long shot, where you know he's walking through a meadow and he does like this football backward kick with something, right? Like, mm. you know, just kind of adding a touch, right, to to the character in this walk. It's really brilliant. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, I love the way he gets up on the stage yes. when he's with uh, Amy and he wants to be the last portrait she ever paints before she gives up in that dramatic yes. and he gets up on stage with this flourish and he stretches one leg you yeah, know, exactly. and it's, it's quite sexual in a way that image right like he's putting herself on stage himself on stage for her um, so i thought uh, that was that was good um, and uh, do you remember the film we saw Mourir à 20 ans, the the french film which was all about may 68 oh um in the now, or in the something now. In the intense now? Yes. Okay. I'm only mentioning it because the actor who plays Professor Bear, Louis Garel, is the son of the director of that movie. Oh, right. That's all. That's and, right. He's, and he's a very... Um, he's, he's quite a famous French star, right, who's done kind of a lot of musicals. He's uh, Anyway, he was lovely, I think, you know, in a role that is really normally very heavily cast by you know kind of elderly more elderly actors um anyway i don't want to dwell too much on that because you know this is little women not little men but i just <laughs> wanted to point out kind of what an achievement those normally thankless roles 
uh, what an achievement it is to, to kind of get so many effects from them and to cast them so well yeah. and to get the actors to perform so well in them actually and the other man I would mention is Tracy Letts who I love who isn't that significant in the film he's the book publisher who you see three times he's the one who we're introduced to at the start when Joe goes to try and sell one yeah. of her stories and he's you know fairly dismissive in certain ways um, and then again, when she tries to sell her novel and have a conversation, and, and, and again, he's fairly dismissive in certain ways. And then he's incredibly dismissive of, of his wife at the kitchen table. Yes. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a pure sort of it's everything I want from Tracy Letts. I love mm. the man, and, mm. and, and uh, I love how sort of pompous he can be. And that's exactly what he's given to do here. I thought Chris Cooper was also very good. He was cracking. Yeah. I really liked him. You oh. get real uh, transparency of emotion out of him. Yes. The loss was... that he's had in his family. Yeah. And how much was... he loves Beth. Yeah. He was very moving. So actually, you know, and these are all, in a way, the most insignificant characters in the film, right? Yeah. yeah. So I thought it was kind of, you know, interesting to kind of move in from there. I was initially quite disappointed in Shorshi Ronan. I mean, she's a beautiful actress. Like, both, you know... So one of the things the film says she's plain. I mean, to me, she's an absolute beauty, really. And of course, she's 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 absolutely emotionally transparent. I think she's such a great actress, really. Mm. Um, but you know, having seen Hepburn, whom I just think is so extraordinary, like because Hepburn in the nineteen thirty three version, she's a real tomboy, right? Like, mm. kind of. Um, so she's both romantic, like she's always like overly flouncy. And, and also overly tomboyish, right? So so it's got like this clash of in, in her that is also kind of very New England and kind of very Yankee and, mm. you know, uh, like a real kind of New England spirit there, which I don't think Sh- Shoshi Ronan evokes to me. Um, but then she won me over, you know. Kind How? Of, um, it was interesting because I thought the haircutting scene. So one of the things about watching so many versions of these films is you can name the scenes, right? Like, yeah. you, you know, the 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 return of the professor, the trip to Paris, you know, uh, Joe being told off by the ant for reading, right? Like, I mean, you know, those are just moments that every version has. Um, the the drawing of the school teacher that gets. Um, Beth in trouble? Uh, Amy. Amy in trouble. Right, like, you know, those are all moments and they're all scenes and every version has them. Mm. So in a way, you're looking to see how they how they play. I thought it was very interesting because the moment where she cuts her hair in this version was almost thrown away. You know, in the other f- films, it's like a major thing, right? Mm. It's like, you know, she sacrificed her beauty and her femininity and her social, you know... Yeah, a passport and so on. I mean, you know, here it's just she's got her hair. <laughs> yeah. Well, the family overreacts to it, but um, but it, well, but it yes. doesn't carry with it all that sense of of you've changed your place in society because of this. Sort yes, of Greta Gerwig turns it into a joke, right? With Amy saying your only beauty yeah. or something, right? Yeah, <laughs> <that's> right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but I think. Um, yeah, she began to win me over in in several scenes, actually. Like, so when she returns back from New York, you know, the death of the sister, the burning of the book, of her book, and her response to it, the, the scene where she turns down Laurie, mm. you know, I thought she was very fine in that, really. So, yeah, 
I still think, actually, to me, there's nothing tomboyish about Sharshi Ronan's Joe. No, but but then but in comparing it to the Catherine Hepburn one, like that's something that that was they were going for then. Is that something they're going for here? Do you think that's something they should have been going for here? I think for me, like having read the book as a child, like you know, part of Joe's character is that she's really driven, like you know, and and she's a she's and she's a young girl in a man's world. Yeah, who where only men are allowed to do certain things, and so her boyishness is, her tomboyishness is part of her drive, right? And kind of you know part of how she succeeds in doing and what she ends up doing. So for me, that tomboyish willfulness, kind of almost take no prisoners actually, uh, a kind of a fierceness, you know, is something that I don't get from. Do you think there's an effort though in this one then, to um, communicate those aspects of a character, but in a more feminine way to re- to reduce the that tomboyishness. Which yes, is, which would speak to a masculinity. Of some well, I sort. think the film makes those points about the condition of women differently. Mm. You know, and obviously we live in a different culture, and they need to be made differently. I mean, I think, for example, that the nineteen the ninety four version. You know, I saw it recently, and some bits of the film seem like a little bit of a feminist track, like. They don't sit comfortably. Like they are, they feel a bit. They they feel preachy rather than the dramatizing of something. Um, I think in this film, it's much more lightly handled, and much more cleverly handled, and handled with much more fun. So arguably, this is it's much more ingrained in this film than in the Julian Armstrong version, mm. but you know, with less, uh, with a less dampening effect. This does have one or two moments where it. Um, a couple of the characters are given uh, uh, monologues, short monologues, but monologues about the state of women and what women, particularly Amy's, when she's speaking to yes. the uh, Laurie character. And she says, this is what women are expected to do, and you can live like this because you're a man, it's easy for you, but I have all this on me. I know, but the, for me, it doesn't just seem like a speech, because actually it becomes part of the dynamic with Laurie. I agree. You know. Yeah. So yeah, uh, I think it, I think that, that that worked really well. Yes, I because think so I, because for the reason that you say. Um, what did you make of Meryl Streep? Well, the thing is that the 1933 version has Edna May Oliver, who is like this old actress um, who's really funny. She's really cantankerous. She's really tall and bony. And again, you know, you get this sense of like a kind of a New Englander, even though I think she might be British, actually. But you'd really get a sense of, like, a no-nonsense, like, mm. you know, slightly angry, but also basically loving, yeah, but willful and cantankerous and bossy person. And she is absolutely funny, right, throughout. So so I love that performance in the 33 version. Meryl Streep is great, but she... But to me, she still also doesn't evoke that kind of, you know, brittle, self-involved, with a slightly nasty edge, but, you know, basically loving her family, but wanting to dominate them all. Like, yeah. I, yeah, I didn't get a sense from the Meryl Streep character in this, really, that she loves her family, actually. Um, I get the feeling that she... she yeah, love, love doesn't, wouldn't seem to be the appropriate word. Like, I mean... She wants them to be successful, and then she wants them to secure their place in society and secure their fortunes and so on. Um, but but you don't get a feeling of emotional attachment between her and her family, I don't think. 
Yeah, well, um, I think that's more the script's fault than Meryl Streep's fault, though. I got the sense, I mean, it was it was also a bit of a comic turn because it had a sense of, um, you know, the Maggie Smith character in Downton Abbey. Yeah. You know, the older one who always got something to say yeah. and is acerbic about everything. And, and she's got a lot of good lines. Yes. Um, particularly when she leaves the wedding and she hasn't got a nice thing to say about anybody. Yeah. And I, but I suppose I also like how the family handles that. Like, none of them gets incredibly offended that she's behaving the way she is. They kind of know, oh, this is what auntie's like. Yes. Um, which yes. is which probably keeps that moment light, lighter than yes. it could otherwise be. But yes. I didn't think it was entirely set. I mean, you can see you can see all the ticks and... Not ticks, but you can see all the um, little flourishes and looks that she's given it's her a performance. performance. But it didn't feel huge... It didn't feel as uh, sort of ingrained or kind of in a body that I, as I would have yeah. liked. And actually, it's it's particularly pointed because she often has scenes with either Shoshi Ronan, who really is like a miracle of an actress. Really. She's so transparent. She, you really feel, or you get the feeling that you're sensing everything that she's feeling. But also, you know, Florence Pugh, who, who is, I mean, I think she's the revelation of this movie. Because I think she steals the whole movie, actually. And I think it's quite something to steal the movie from Joe March. Yeah. I don't know if you felt that way. Um, not exactly, but although I liked her. Um, I mean, the, the attention is still always on Joe. And I didn't feel that Amy stole a scene. What, so how did you... How she did got you... laughs from everywhere. She had like this kind of rage that you felt it was like a real person. Like when she was mm. angry. Right? Um, you know, so the thing of the burning of the book and... Like, everything she does is believable, mm-hmm. including her kindness, right? She seemed to be, like, pulsing with life in a way that, for example, uh, Meryl Streep wasn't, you know? Uh, yeah, that there was kind of like a... Yeah, an mm-hmm. anger and love and, you know, pride. And, like, I think she brought it all out. Like, you know, including that scene with Laurie, which was marvelous. Like, I'm not going to be second best, right? All of those. I thought she was, like... Yeah, I yeah, you're right. Uh, I, I, extraordinary, really. Um, so, but this is a film of very good performances. I mean, you know, I don't want to fault anyone because Shoshi Ronan is wonderful. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, for me, kind of, you know, the the person who really brought brought life and so on was really the Florence Pugh character. And I mean, I think it might be worth saying that the. The worst performance, or the less... I mean, it's not an irritating and it's not awful or anything. But, you know, the worst performance was Emma Watson's, who I found very mannered. I never believe Emma Watson yeah. in anything. Oh, well, I... Um, I, 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 mean, I mean, that sounds like I'm being, I don't know, reactionary or just unfair. But it's true. I really... I always see Emma Watson doing things. I never feel like... Florence Pugh was her character, you know. And I never get that from her. Even, even, even as Hermione, and I think part of the problem is that, well, I probably still see her as Hermione to a bit, because that was who she was for seven years, or ten years, or whatever. Um, I thought she was but, very good in the bling ring. And also, I saw, is the, the, was she in the perks of being a wallflower, or am I confusing her with someone don't else? Know. Anyway, I've seen her in another kind of teen film where I thought she was very good. So, Beauty but here... Huh? Beauty and the Beast. She was very good in that. You, I thought, but what wasn't it mannered though in the same way? Well, I I don't, yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I think here I feel like she plays types instead of people. That's how she comes across to me. Well, 
I mean, here she comes across as very mannered and predictable. All her, all her line readings and her responses are predictable, you know, and one-dimensional. So, um, so I thought I thought she was a disappointment, but uh, but she was the only one. I thought Laura Dern was fantastic, actually, mm. uh, and and in a in what I, a role I would not associate with her. Why is that? Because, you know, I see her through David Lynch films or playing like, you know, brittle bitches in Little White Lies or, you know, kind of this kind of matriarchal kind of loving, you know, figure and so on. It's not something that I would have thought with it would have been within her range. And she was brilliant. I thought she actually had an interesting kind of maternal edge in um, in Star Wars Episode Eight. When she played Holdo, the purple head. She was very good in that you as know, well. She, yes, I think that's one of the reasons that people hated her was because basically she was playing like your mum, uh, you know, or your mum's mate. Your mum was pink You hair. can't go and play. You, know, <laughs> you sort of follow the rules. Uh, think, you know, she had an interesting, but also there was a there was a slightly brittle edge to that as well, yeah. with her having to tell the characters not to do things and stuff, um, and be a bit, bit of a boss, which she's not so much here. She's no. she's a friend of her girls as much as a mother. Yes. She's got a real. Warm I mean, they, they, they don't call her mother, do they? They call her Marmy. Marmy. Yes. Is that a word for mum, or is that? Was well, their word for mom? It's yeah. like a family thing. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I love the moment that Greta Gerwig gives her when she returns home at Christmas, and um, and everyone's having a fuss and they're rehearsing a play, I think, and she just stands in the hallway when she comes in and looks at everyone, and they haven't seen her, and she gives she has this moment of like. It's a weird moment of like composing herself or um, just having like, like a second of peace before she knows it's all going to start kicking off because she's home. And then she says, Merry Christmas, everyone. And then, uh, but it does all kick off. Mm. And I thought that was a really interesting little moment. I think the film has a lot of little moments like that that are mm. just it, little character moments that, that mm. speak to, you just get a feeling of, of, a, of a rich life. For instance, um, when Chris Cooper uh, listens to Beth playing the piano. Yes, and, you know, and he sat, sits outside on the stairs, and he and he and he cries. And it's not like it doesn't make any sense. He's he loves the music, and it reminds him of his daughter, and she reminds him of his daughter in particular. And it's kind of it's just for him, and he's promised her, you know, no one will be listening to you. But of course, he is. That's a credit, I think, to the director. Mm. You know, because in other versions, the focus is on Beth playing, right? Whereas here, it begins with Beth playing, but then the focus is on the grandfather listening yeah. and his response. So the reason why we feel he's remembering his daughter and the blah, 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 and, you know, the loss of it and, you know, is because he, the, because the camera's on him and also because Chris Cooper delivers on that, so to speak. Yeah, but it's an interesting accent that, you know, that the accent could have been on the child, the child's pleasure in playing the piano rather than, mm. you know, the man's pleasure but also sadness and loss in hearing the playing. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was very good. And so Chris Cooper's character has just this very low level B plot, you know, that goes underneath the whole thing that isn't isn't necessary for any of the main stories to be told, but you you feel it every time he's on screen, you just understand this character. Hmm. You understand and it's and, and that is down to as you say, the director, the script, the um the action sheet that Greg Gerwig chooses to, to put on him and the performance. And and it's one of these things where it's you just get this rich rich sense of who this man is. Yes. And and again, he's entirely believable. Mm. Um, that just... There's just it's, it's like a side dish to mm. everything else. Some sequences seemed to me either underlit 
or the projection system wasn't luminous enough or I initially thought oh what's wrong with the projection system here it's not luminous enough but then there were scenes outside that are just like breathtakingly luminous and mm. beautiful right like you know so the scenes at the beach right yeah. were like glorious the scene of the two sisters just reading with each other outside yeah that was you know beautiful the skating scene yeah. brilliant and beautiful so then it makes you wonder why does everything why so many other scenes seem just gray and underlit I mean, I, d- I didn't notice that, oh. so um, I, d- I don't know. Right. Um, I suppose the, the the scene of the kiss between um, Joe and what's his name, the professor, Professor Bear, was going for a silhouetted romance. I don't think it delivered. You know, I think it was going for for something beautiful that it didn't quite capture. Um, but no, I didn't. I didn't think of anything particularly too dark or too washed out or anything. Um, I loved actually the the shots of uh, Timothy Chalamet and Joe dancing outside the yes, party. Yes, that was wonderful. And there are these beautiful tracks That's that go alongside, scene. and so in the background you can see through the windows mm. everyone dancing inside, and then in front of them, you know, kind of jumping past the windows mm. uh, are the two of them, and 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 there's a, and there's a yeah, contrast of light and dark there because the lights coming through the windows, but you can see these guys outside in the moonlight. That was lovely, and and actually that, that had a sense as well of um, remember in the favorite, the dance scene in the favorite where they're doing these silly modern mm. dances to classical music. Well, it's not as mannered as that here, nor is it as you know they're not actually doing specifically silly modern dances. But you know when they kind of let loose yeah. and no one can see them, that has the sense of breaking out of very all, playful, yeah. all of that uh, kind of social constraint they're supposed to have on them. I thought, so, you know, because you can't help it when you're watching comparing people. And I thought, for me, until watching this film, Christian Bale, you know, was the best Laurie. But then there was that beautiful scene outside where Joe turns him down, right? Mm. And he's just so fantastic in that. And actually, that is so beautifully lit, right, kind of you know, uh, uh, with the focus, there was so much of the focus on his response to that, right? Like on how he's hurting. Um, anyway, that's an aside. The way that was shot um, struck me, and I couldn't work it out. That the way that he's shot um, is is with a, it's from an angle that's just above him. Above him, yeah, it's looking slightly down looking on slightly him. Looking slightly down on him. And, and you can't tell exactly why, because it's not really her point of view that the mm. camera's um, uh, showing you. But it's, also, it wouldn't feel right if it were on his eye level there somehow. No. Like he feels downtrodden, ashamed in a way, or or, or kind of break, beaten in some sense. Also, you get the sense of his feeling, but whilst he's trying to hide his feeling, because actually you're often looking down on his eyes. Yeah? yeah. So, you know, you only partially see his eyes some a lot of the time. So I thought, no, I thought that was a brilliant choice of of angle, really. So I, I mean, I suppose I'm keen to think of it more. Um, or keen to ask you more about the differences between those previous versions and and um, this one, because uh, particularly in the sense of the the worlds into which these films were put, or the worlds in which they were made. You mm. know, so you've talked about um, you know, or I asked you about the the sense of uh, Joe not being as much of a tomboy, and you know, is that related to to um, the kind of the kind of women that the film is speaking to today? I suppose the women they were speaking to in 1933. Can you think of other 
sort of... Well, I think what struck me really in the 1933 version, for example, the 1933 version, you know, was at the height of the Depression, right? And it was like a, a sociological phenomenon, the film. It was like King Kong, actually. I yeah. think King Kong, Mae West, and Little Women were the big hits of the year and the worst year of the Depression. So things like, um, you know, the kindness to the neighbors. So, you know, the poor neighbors uh, uh, are, are immigrants. They're German in the original, right? Um, and so the, the sharing of the food and that sense of community and the you know, getting through bad times together, you know, uh, in a moment of social crisis is very much a part of the 1933 version. The 1949 version, very interestingly, you know, makes a big deal about scenes that are not in this one. You know, so one of the scenes that appears in almost all the versions except this one is when it's Christmas and um, the girls, instead of spend, they, uh, spending the money on themselves, sacrifice it and buy something for the mother. You know, in the 1949 version, that's a whole scene. So, you know, the girls go to the shop, you know, and they choose their ribbons and papers and clothes and, you know, perfume, whatever they want for themselves, right? And then they go home, you know, and then they go back to the shop and exchange everything, you know, to buy something for the mother. So, you know, this idea of post-war American prosperity and, yeah, it's, uh, it's very interesting. And as I said, what struck me about the 1994 version is um, the the accent on the role of women in society, which is kind of stated in the other versions, but not really, right? So for example, in the 1933 version, the main thing about Jo is she doesn't want to break up her family, you know? So anybody intruding on the family, she sees as an enemy, right? So, you know, the resistance to the Tudor marrying her sister and all that stuff is, you know, she doesn't want to break up her home, which she's so comfortable in, right? In the 1949 version, I don't even think there's much made of that, to be honest, really. Like, the gender roles are so kind of taken for granted. Like, you know, I think kind of the June Allison thing is, you know, she wants to be a writer and she wants to be famous, but there's... I don't want to over-exaggerate, but there's relatively little that has to do with her being a woman and what that means in society. Right. You know, so I think every version is speaking to, you know, to a different context, really. And so how do you think this one is speaking to its context? Well, I think this one is speaking through its context very much through a feminist lens, you know, um, but through a very inclusive lens, right? So there's that moment where the Emma Watson character says, you know, these may not be your dreams, but they're mine, you know, and my dreams are just as valid as yours. And my dream is, you know, to get married and bring up a family, right? Like, mm. you know, so kind of the, yeah. So, so that's an articulation of that choice that actually never had to be made before. You know, I don't think it ever was made before. It's always taken for granted that that was like a woman's role to do that. So it didn't need explaining. Yeah. Whereas now the fact that it's just as valid a choice as, you know, going off and being a novelist in New York is an interesting kind of... Yeah, I, I was, I'm curious to get your thoughts on the, um, on the women's uh, relationship to their work as well. Because I suppose I always had this idea in my head that it was going to be one of these stories about who you marry. And of course it is that to, to a great extent. Um, but also, particularly Joe and Amy have ambitions to be uh, artists. Yes. Amy wants to be a painter... Um, and Joe's a writer. And 
and these are and so their ambitions are kind of they have, they have these conflicts to to kind of manage or try and marry up between what they want to do for their work, what they want to do with uh, kind of their romantic lives, and also the maintenance of their family relationships, um, and kind of the place they live and this sort of thing. Um, these I think they combine in really interesting ways. And the film, I suppose, the film ultimately. I suppose does it feel like it ultimately says you don't, you shouldn't have to compromise. Anything. No. Despite the fact that they do, they find they find they wait they work out ways to make the best of what they have. But well, I think basically, you know, uh, you can't control what world you're born into, but you have some degree of control of you know what you can do within it, you know. But also, what world you're born into shapes or helps shape your desires or your you. But I thought what's very interesting about the film is that all the sisters want to be artists. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, so initially, Joe, Joe's a writer. Uh, is it the elder sister, the Emma Watson one? You know, Meg. yeah. She, she's a, wants to be an actress. Mm. The other one paints. The other one plays the piano. Right. Mm. So. But out of all of those, it's only Joe who wants to pursue it as a career, right? Like, you know... Uh, um, Amy wants to pursue it for greatness. That's what she says. She says, if I can't be great, yes. then I want to be nothing at all. Which is why she dramatically says, I want to give this up. Yes. Um, but also, you get the feeling that, you know, what she really wants to be is a society woman. She wants to, you know, have a contempt at home and be well off and you know, kind of be a good mistress of the house and be, you know, know how to paint a little and how to how to draw a little and, you know, kind of, mm. yeah. So, I mean, her whole identity is not invested in it the way that it clearly is for Joe. Yeah. Um, so you see the development of, of, the, of that as the film progresses. Mm. I think she takes um, uh, her aunt's words to heart when, you know, that, that scene where... She's painting away, and her aunt says, "Come in here for a second. Mm. And then she says, "You need to marry someone really rich because you're because everyone else is a lost cause." But she knows that. Yeah, and but she, yeah, but that's when she does that. Is that like a, is that the turning point for her? No, because the other girls also know that, but they don't do it. You know, they follow their heart. So that's what I mean. So that's when she turns the corner from it into actually taking that seriously and going, "I I have to marry well." You know, where, which because well, that's something that Joe conspicuously isn't interested in, in listening to. But she gives that speech to Laurie explaining, you know, yeah. the why of it, right? And then, in fact, it's very interesting because, in fact, she does turn the German guy down yeah. or whatever his name is, right? So, um, you know, and, and by that, and at that point, it's not a sure thing that Laurie's going to propose to her, right? In fact, she expects that, that that's over. So she's pragmatic, yeah, but always with following her heart, really. As you can argue, are the other sisters, which is also interesting. So this is what I what what I I mean when I say I think the film is very inclusive. It has a respect for people's choices that actually are quite different in each instance. Yeah, I, I think I think Amy's interesting because she compromises in a way that Joe isn't willing to, and and I think actually I think Meg is interesting because. Because she is brought down to earth. I, I, I mean, this is, this I, to some degree speaks to what I was saying about when things start to wrap up in quite convenient ways. Um, so uh, Meg kind of wants wants all the best stuff, but she can't afford it. Her husband doesn't make enough money. Um, 
she didn't quote unquote marry well enough, uh, which is why her aunt says she's a lost cause. But what ends up in their relationship is she sells this expensive fabric that she bought. She gives up the dream of that dress that she wanted, and you know the last you see of them basically is them embracing and kissing and you know moving on, moving forward with their not enormously uh, wealthy family. Yes. Um, now that's just, that's in, that's something that could have gone a completely different way and led to you know another 10 years of drama in their family or a breakup or that sort of thing so it's something that um is a compromise it's a it's a compromise that she makes for her family that i suppose is believable um but does feel like it's in that in that wrapping things up nicely i think it's very believable i mean it's very selfish of her it was yeah you know i mean kind of you know I mean, $50 was a huge amount of money in that period, right? It's like, you know, not quite buying a house, but, (laughs) you know, I mean, kind of, people were making $7 a week, $50 for a dress, even if you only bought one a year, is a a huge, well, so huge, that actually it prevents him from buying a winter coat, right? You know, um, and that was only for the material. So I I think what that's all about is to show us it's the, I think it's almost the opposite of what you're saying because it actually shows us this there's romantic ideal of you marrying for love well actually marrying for love has consequences one of the consequences is that if you want to keep your marriage together which in this period you have almost no choice about right kind of you are you are having going to have to make sacrifices you marry for love and you have no money and you have to adjust to that Mm. would have been very easy to say, okay, well, they just married for love. Because actually, I, I, that's another scene that I don't remember in the other films. I don't remember in the other films having to return a dress because you married down, so to speak, mm. right? So this is something that the film, this particular version brings out, the materiality of choices. Yeah. I think what I loved most about it, which I was forgot to say, and which you don't see in the other films, is that you get a real sense of so it's part of the tone, but it's a real sense of the interaction between the sisters. Yeah. You know, the way that they argue, the way that they fight, right? Like there's a much more like the other versions are almost too saccharine. You know, the kind of sisterhood is wonderful, you know, and it's almost like, you know, there's never a problem between them mm-hmm. or the problems are kind of very minor. This one, you get a real sense of like rage and anger sometimes against each other or, or sometimes just horseplay that... Yeah, it goes a bit too far, yeah? Yeah. There's a real sense of siblings, yeah, of real siblings, right? Not not just this ideal, yeah, yeah. kind of lovey-dovey. So I love that about this film. And the other thing I'd say is, is how um, believable uh, all the dialogue is. You know, yes. actually, actually just, just yes. the words that people say and the way they're saying, because I think sometimes, especially when you're, um, when you're doing dialogue from a different age... Uh, you know, in evoking that different age, it can sometimes feel quite stilted. It's I think very... I think one or two of Laura Dern's lines do when she when she says "it is" or "this is" uh, as opposed to "it's." Mm. You know, where contraction would just feel more natural. Occasionally, she feels a little stilted, but not really very much. And and actually, every, everything people say, even when it's very clearly speaking in the style of a different age, feels really natural. Mm. That reminds me, one of the things about the Florence Pugh character. So all versions up to this one make Amy pretentious, 
right? I so she's always mispronouncing words, trying to be elegant, but actually not knowing what the words are. Yeah, or saying the wrong word. Yeah. Mm. So um, I forget concrete examples, you know. But actually, in this film, they remove that tr that trait because in other versions, it's a way of making fun of the character. Yeah, her yeah. pretentiousness is used for humor, right? So Elizabeth Taylor plays her in the nineteen forty nine version, right? And kind of you're meant to laugh at her, really. Yeah, for kind of getting, you know, all these words wrong. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Like this film doesn't make fun of its subjects. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's generous to everybody. Yeah. I think it gives them all a moment, or and it doesn't have a snobby word to say about anyone or anything like that. Yes. Um. All right. So um, let's wrap it up. We highly recommend that you see it. Uh, we, we really highly recommend that you see it because mm. there's been a real resistance regarding men seeing this film. Has yeah, there has. It's like, you know, and actually there have been like polls about it. Like men just won't go see this film, mm. even even no matter that the reviews are excellent and so on. They just think it's not the film for them, which actually is very misogynist and also kind of untrue. You know, I if you go to this film, you'll have a really great time. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube. Uh, Spotify mm. on social media we're on Facebook and Twitter and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com thank you very much bye bye <laughs>